When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast, where we look at things like mythology, philosophy, history, and how they inform our popular storytelling. And as always, I am exceptionally, incredibly, indubitably, I don't know if that's a word. It sure is. Super excited to be here today. And the reason I'm very excited to be here today, if we look at our last few episodes, We have dealt with themes of what it means to tell stories or reach upon mythologies or reach upon moral systems that have to do with the medieval Western European world. And that got our gears thinking of what other narratives could we discuss that maybe have been discussed before, aren't being discussed, that grip grip our imaginations now or don't grip our imaginations now. And we really were thinking of different things for medieval history. In particular, I've been immersed in medieval uh, history for a long time vis-a-vis different history podcasts, different history books, different history lectures that I've been participating in, getting in all things medieval. And when I started thinking of what's the next evolution of Midnight Myth podcast as it pertains to the Middle or Medieval Ages, I came to a figure that I wanted to discuss and Laurel wanted to discuss very much. And today we are going to talk about Robin Hood. It's a super exciting topic to breach because there is such a wealth of uh, popular folklore as well as, you know, Hollywood movies and literature and television uh, and everything in between with this figure who is sort of a, a national hero for the English people or for the British people. Um, it's exciting to do this in the wake of a few podcasts where we have been playing in that uh, sort of historical sandbox of the Middle Ages uh, into modernity. And, uh, you know, we have sort of touched upon some of the literary styles that erupted out of that, whether they intersect with the Arthurian legend or whether they inform Shakespeare. And so this felt like a natural evolution of that uh, sort of sandbox that we've been playing in. So I'm very excited to talk about this and excited to see where it leads us in the future. And so for me, Robin Hood is largely informed through the 1991 Kevin Costner movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This was a very influential movie. I was 10 years old when it came out. I saw it in the theater. When it was finally out for video, because this is before there was DVD and streaming, my uh, my aunts and uncles got together and got me this movie on VHS, because that's how into it I was. It was one of the movies that I watched obsessively. I watched every minute of it over and over again and again, because I was so into it. And so into what I didn't realize at the time was how into history I was. 
because Robin Hood represented a piece of historical fiction. But to me, I also liked the action. I liked the romance. I liked the archery. I liked Morgan Freeman as Azim. And for me, that was my entry point into medieval history and also into medieval folklore. So that to me is sort of the the central thesis of how I analyze Robin Hood as it relates to and compares to and is in relation to the 91 movie. And as we'll kind of uncover tonight, it represents sort of a culmination of the Robin Hood legend as we know it with its hundreds of years of history and cultural significance. So what we're going to do tonight is sort of trace that legend through to how we got to Kevin Costner, how we got to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I will say, just as a preface here, I was but a wee tiny baby in 1991. So I saw this movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, for the first time this week and I'm coming from a very fresh perspective where I'm able to perceive some of the datedness, but I'm also able to accept how much, uh, how far the Robin Hood legend has come as demonstrated within that 1991 film. So again, super excited to track that evolution, see how we got from there to here, uh, and sort of question what about Robin Hood has stuck with us, has stuck with the English, and has stuck with America for so long as well. Before we jump in, I just want to say if you have not yet, now would be a wonderful time to go ahead and hit subscribe on whatever podcast listening app you are listening on right now because we have some very big and very exciting surprises in the future for you. So you want to hit subscribe and be able to download whatever is showing up in your podcast feed. Uh, Meanwhile, If you want to join the conversation or you want to be the first to find out about new and exciting announcements, please hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can also check our website, www.midnightmyth.com, for additional content. We also have blogs that we publish there as often as we can. So plenty more information and more detail about what we're talking about on the podcast. Yeah. And just thank you, listeners. Um, There's a lot of you out there now. A lot of you have hit us up on many different platforms, some through the website, some through Twitter, some through Facebook, just from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. You guys are the best podcast listeners. Best. So for my estimation, Robin Hood really starts um, in the historical record around the 14th century. Um, primarily Robin Hood is referenced in different poems and songs. Robin Hood is off, often used as a person who is celebrated during festivals in medieval England. So from the 14th century, in case uh, you're counting, that means the 1300s. Yes, and that is when Robin Hood shows up in his earliest literary reference in the alliterative poem Piers Plowman. But his ballads, uh, the sort of things that we know as the bedrock of the Robin Hood legend, come out during the later half of the 15th century. So the uh, 1400s. However, we do have some marginalia. We do have some sort of vague references and allusions to a Robin Hood-like figure or a character named Robin Hood in the literal margins of literary texts going back to the 13th century. So we've got a soup of these sort of middle age times where he's starting to appear, but he reaches the height of what we know as the Robin Hood legend now in the 15th century. So we'll just say for, you know, just to make it easy, that this character has been around for almost a thousand years. Yeah. Just a little shy of a full millennia. So my first question for you, Laurel, and uh, hopefully you're prepared. I know you're prepared, but hopefully you're ready to wax eloquently on this. Why is this character so fucking popular? Why is he a thousand goddamn years old? It is such a big question, Um, and there are a lot of ways that we can answer this, but I think um, 
I think there's a few ways into this. There are uh, plenty of contemporary debates about whether or not this Robin Hood figure was a real person. And while I'm not particularly interested in debating the historicity of this figure on this podcast, I do think it is, it's mentionable that because we have these uh, sort of vague allusions to him in these much earlier texts than the ballads, Um, that either this was a figure of tremendous popularity in an oral tradition, or this was a historical figure or an amalgamated historical figure that becomes a more uh, continuous, more uh, consistent figure later on. So we, we know that he has... Uh, roots at least as far back as the 13th century, maybe as early as 1220 or so. Um, And then he continues to gain momentum throughout the following centuries as we are in the wake of things like the Wars of the Roses, of the Hundred Years' War, of big and exciting and uh, sort of palpably English moments in history where uh, the defeats of the French or the debates over who uh, should wear the crown start to crystallize into an idea of what it means to be quintessentially English uh, and also coincide with the emergence of the first ever Western middle class. And Robin Hood then emerges, emerges as a working class hero as a yeoman who is uh, sort of the the perfect idea of what it would be to have complete freedom over who you are and what you do. Yeomans were a class of people who owned and cultivated their own land. Hold on, what, what's this yeoman? That that's a new term to me. Yeah, so so like I said, it it emerges as this class of people who can farm and cultivate their own land. Uh, So rather than working in a feudal system where you have a lord that you, regardless of what you want to do in your life, you have to cultivate his land and he will, uh, you know, protect you and provide for you. Uh, You're either that or you are a landed gentry. You own land for yourself and you have a peasant class working for you. Instead, we have the emergence of this class that cultivates their own land and lives off of it in a way that provides some amount of independence. So Robin Hood sort of emerges as one of these characters uh, and then takes off to the forest and lives outside of the law in a way that provides a connection to nature and an independence that had not yet been uh, really felt by the English people. So I think that's why we first start to latch on to this character because he's in charge of his own destiny, because he's in charge of his own land, because he leads his own group of people democratically. So uh, let me, let me make sure I'm, I'm following you <clears throat> because that was a very dense segment yeah. there and, and, and very, very awesome and cool. Are you saying that Robin Hood as a character, not as a historical figure, which is what we're exploring here tonight represents medieval middle class and that's why people liked him? Is that is that ultimately what you're boiling it down to? Absolutely. And he will continue to represent this even when the character will uh, turn into a sort of banished um, aristocrat. This is a character who pretty much universally represents middling sorts, people who are not aristocrats and who are not peasants. And In, in his original... yeah. Form. Yeah, and gives an identity to this class of people that has not yet had one. So what is his original form then? I think it's it's best for us to define that. So where does Robin Hood first come on the scene and how does he come on the scene? He comes on the scene uh, pretty explosively in the 15th century with the ballads that we talked about. Uh, so one of those is called The Little Jest of Robin Hood. And uh, there's another one called Robin Hood and the Monk. And these are stories of a... Uh, basically righteous outlaw um, because it was possible to be both who is pious, who is devoted to the Virgin Mary, but who is opposed in all senses to the clergy 
is opposed to the corrupted uh, Catholic Church of the time. So we have a character who stands in opposition to this local authority, but who lives sort of by righteous uh, virtue, if that makes sense. It definitely does. Yeah, and he is sort of this spirit of Sherwood Forest and lives among the trees and lives with this band of merry men who are this incredibly democratic society that is formed on the fringes of the aristocratic and the peasantry. When you say that, I'm just curious here, that they're a democratic society, were they, did they elect Robin Hood? Is, is that what you're, you mean? Or do you mean democratic in a more like um, sort of democratic feeling that they're, they're not about uh, power being passed from family to family, they're they're about you know leaders kind of emerging out of uh, for picking for lack of a better term picking themselves up off their bootstraps exactly yeah so this is a group of people who all mutually respect one another and say you know the best possible person to lead us is Robin and he thinks he can do the job therefore he is going to do so and we'll see that motif continue as the band of merry men gets fleshed out a little bit. Um, throughout the later stories as this character evolves. But this is always a group of people who love one another, who recognize that they have to rely on one another to live in this sort of rough wilderness of the forest. And Robin leads them not because he has a birthright, not because he's been ordained by God, but because everybody kind of mutually agrees that he would be the best one to lead them. Can I connect that? point to the movie. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah. So, cause I'm, I'm really with you here because I like where you're going. So in the movie, the 1991, um, movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which we can all agree. Everyone that listens agrees. Everyone that out there agrees is the best version of Robin Hood <laughs> ever done in all forums. Um, without debate, there is a interesting point where Kevin Costner first is taken in with the band of outlaws after his stick fight with little John and he earns their respect by hitting one man with a stick better than that man hits him. Yeah. Very, very simple, masculine. Like yeah. pound your chest form of masculinity in which they're, they're hanging out and you know, it's not really clear. Some of the men really respect and accept him, but then there's Will Scarlet saying there's nothing like us. Robin Hood then goes back into civilization, back into the church and there he has an altercation with the sheriff of Nottingham and comes back with a little bit of bread. And people are instantly like, you've sparked a war. This is going to be terrible. And Robin has to make a plea to them saying, I want to give you my pitch about why I should lead you. He doesn't walk in and say, I'm going to lead you. He doesn't walk in and say, this is my forest. He doesn't walk in and sit there and say, this is the natural hierarchy he has to convince he them. He has to campaign. So it first starts with the battle with Little John and winning it to gain their respect. Yeah. Then it is after he goes to um, he assaults he assaults the uh, sheriff of Nottingham in the the bishops, which is a whole other can of worms that we can unpack. But he cuts the sheriff of Nottingham's cheek, and the sheriff of Nottingham has that great line played by the immortal Alan Rickman: "I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon." He comes back with the bread. They still don't join him. And then the sheriff starts killing all of their other lower class kinsmen and whoever is left comes to find them in the forest. And at that point, they're still not willing to join him until he goes on the speech about how he can even train a boy to find a chink in the armor and how he starts convincing them that we have the power. We are not helpless. We can actually make weapons. We can have a battle plan. We can stop the flow of goods through Sherwood Forest. Follow me where eventually they all decide to follow him. And to me, it echoes with your point in these ballads that there is a democratization of leadership happening here that stands in contrast to how leadership works in the medieval society. And it's planting the seeds so many centuries ago that the idea is that leaders are best when chosen by the lead. Yeah, absolutely. There's a utopian aspect to it as well, right? This idea of like, we can live in the idyllic forest 
and it can just be a bunch of guys just drinking with your buddies around a campfire every night and we can do it and we can have a sustainable living that can help all of us thrive. And however utopian it sounds, it does form this kind of microcosm and this proto-democracy that uh, starts to be incorporated as the legend becomes more liberal with its times. It, and it is a liberal legend, right? So, and I'm not saying that in terms of like the... Um, uh, I, I'm saying the political that, dynamic of modern America or you are. So I, I am um, mm. because this is a, this is a legend that not only embraces that proto-democracy and embraces this sort of uh, you know, all of us, once we leave the court and all of its corruption, once we leave the church and all of its corruption can live better because human nature is like inherently good and we can all, do well and do right by each other. But it's also got these, of course, socialistic tendencies that it starts to incorporate with the um, stealing from the rich and giving and giving to the poor. And then once we get the incorporation of Maid Marian uh, later in the sort of development of the ballads and the plays and the Robin Hood games at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, we have like an early feminist character. We have a spunky and sort of fiery maiden who will not be led by anyone who in every instance of, you know, being part of this legend is as strong, is as powerful, is as noble and headstrong as any of the men characters and is an equal of Robin Hood. So this is a very progressive tale, even when it is first introduced to people. So what I'm leading to with all of this is we have the creation of what's known as a folk hero. Now, a folk hero is defined as a type of hero, real, fictional, or mythological, with the sole salient characteristic being the imprinting of his or her name, personality, and deeds in the popular consciousness of a people. Ooh, where'd you get that definition from? Wikipedia. What? But the most important things that we take away from this is regardless of the historicity of that figure, they imprint themselves on the popular consciousness of a people. So a people, a nation state or a culture are defined in some way, in some aspect or facet by the deeds or personality of this figure. So other folk heroes that we can mention are going to be like Joan of Arc for France, or Spartacus, or Pocahontas, or any cowboy or frontiersman for the American people. These are figures who will imprint themselves so deeply that you will begin to identify your national identity by this person. And Robin Hood becomes that because of some of the reasons that I laid out uh, just now in the inception of his legend because he represents a middle class that didn't exist before and needed its own kind of working class hero. Uh, but also he begins to evolve as the English people evolve and he begins to uh, retain some of the characteristics that the English people will begin to identify as naturally English. And part of that will link to that uh, desire for democracy, that desire for independence and uh, sort of individual pride, and also a steadfast loyalty to just leadership and the monarchy. I'll throw in just a personal anecdote here. Uh, you and I have been to London. I've been to London twice uh, in the past 10 years. And one thing that I noticed anytime I took a tour with uh, you know an, an English tour guide or a London tour guide, and of course they're putting on a bit of a show for me, but they embody a sort of unique cognitive dissonance. I think that the uh, the British and the English people have, which is yes, we are independent. Yes, we are a sovereign nation. Yes, we are a democracy. But goddamn, we love the Queen. We love our monarchy. Uh, we love having this sort of symbolic figurehead, and that helps to define who we are. 
And that will begin to define who Robin Hood is as someone who is opposed to unjust rulers, as someone who is opposed to corrupt leadership, but someone who is fiercely and unchangeably loyal to what he perceives as just leadership. All right. So I think I need to do a little recapping here. I'll call this the end of phase one of this discussion. (laughs) Sure. So in phase one of this discussion, we have, because there was so much, I just want to recap. So in phase one, we uncovered that Robin Hood emerged it through songs and through festivals as a British folk hero. He was not a noble like the Lord of Loxley or the Earl of, you know, Huntington, yeah. Huntington, yes, or the Earl of Earldom, I was going to say. But <laughs> um, but he is a sort of middle class medieval social uh, person who owns his own land, but is not a noble and retreats to the forest and is an outlaw who stands against corrupt authority, in particular corrupt religious authority, though he himself is religious and in particular reveres the, 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 the mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, pardon me, yeah. um, stands against what he feels are social institutions that are corrupt. That is not the Robin Hood we know today, right? So the Robin Hood we know today is a little different. The Robin Hood we know today is an aristocrat. The Robin Hood that we know today is loyal to the king in particular. He's mostly grounded into King Richard or Richard the Lionheart. Correct. Um, Richard uh, or Richard the First, who led the King's Crusade or the Third Crusade, if you're counting, for the Crusades for the Holy Land. So when, in your analysis of this, when does this shift go from purely just a sort of middle class chosen by other people to help like lead the outlaws to a aristocrat loyal to the king who is also still loyal to the fringe. Yeah. So right around the beginning of the 17th century, we start to see some tales of Robin Hood as a, uh, a member of the nobility, but this really takes off much later during the 19th century, when there is a resurgence of the popularity of the Robin Hood legend that coincides with the resurgence of English nationalism under uh, George IV and Victoria. Uh, So it's Joseph Ritson, who is a late 18th century publisher and historian, who sort of rediscovers the medieval uh, jest of Robin Hood. He rediscovers the ballads uh, from the 15th century and republishes them in a folio with his own analysis of the sort of historical uh, Robin Hood that he perceives to be uh, a real historical person. Now, he places this Robin Hood around 1160 in terms of inception, so Joseph Ritson, and in this republishing, is the one who starts to uh, place Robin Hood as a figure who coincides with Richard I, who could have ridden in the Crusades, and starts to contextualize him as someone who is loyal to that king outside of the nation and in opposition to the sniveling and cowardly King John. Um, so that's where we start to get that. And then uh, Sir Walter Scott, who is sort of this great, well-known uh, English writer or British writer um, who starts to uh, sort of paint the romantic idea of what we know as the English landscape today in his books like Ivanhoe, also gives us a version of Robin who is noble, who is romantic, and that launches this huge surge of renewed interest in Robin Hood and this recontextualization of him as a noble character who is loyal to Richard the Lionheart. Very interesting. And what's, I think, really interesting about bringing him up again at this time is that uh, from the Regency into Victoria, we see not only a time of like booming achievements in... Uh, art and architecture under George IV, but a growing chasm between the haves and the have-nots that won't really be uncovered in literature until later with Dickens. So while we're seeing so much 
uh, incredible, uh, you know, growth in the output of like things of beauty. We're also seeing people just plummet deeper and deeper into po- into poverty. We're seeing a population boom where there are not enough resources for people, and where Robin Hood becomes uh, a needed figure, but he's been reappropriated by the nobility. So. This entire line of inquiry started with a question that I asked you that I don't know if we're any closer to asking to answering. Right. Which is why has Robin Hood sustained? Right. I think we've danced with that question, but I think we've gotten to the interpretation of Robin Hood that we live under the shadow now, where the ninety-one uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves movie is under which is the aristocrat who hangs out with Friar Tuck and Little John and Will Scarlet and Maid Marian, and he was a crusader. I think that's the Robin Hood that we all know today. Why do you think this character has endured from such a long time ago into today to the point where they are still trying to remake Robin Hood movies? Now, the last two um, attempts have not been commercially successful, I'd probably argue they haven't been artistically successful, right. but the character means so much to me. I've seen them like I know them because I love the character sure. Robin Hood so much. So the question is why would a chap such as myself, an American still love Robin Hood all of these centuries later? I, you know, I'm going to answer that with an, another question and sort of a, just a line of thought that I've always had, which is, when we look back at the sort of popular consciousness of Robin Hood in the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, it's definitely imprinted with a lot of Americana, right? So we're talking about... Interesting. Go on there. We're talking at least with a lens of the 1991 movie by a, you know, American writer, director team, and uh, primarily American actors putting on English accents or no accents at all. Um, which is a thing, right? So like, why are we calling the definitive Robin hood of, of our lifetime? The one that stars Kevin Costner, right? City slickers. Um, so, so why that? And then why, it, why did Disney imprint it's Robin hood with so many symbols of the American West and country music and honky tonk? Um, so I, I would sort of fire back at like, why is Robin Hood still important to you? Why has America adopted Robin Hood, who has stood as this sort of democratic yet clearly socialistic figure in the West for so long? You know, that's a really great question. So one thing that you've mentioned now twice was the socialistic, quote unquote, nature right. of Robin Hood. And I'm assuming that you mean because he robs from the rich and gives to the poor, yeah. that that is somehow socialist. And one thing I, I kind of want can I push back on that? You absolutely can. I mean, so, McCarthy banned Robin Hood from textbooks because he was c- too communist. <laughs> but yeah, but that, I mean, so we shouldn't let in a fuckhead like McCarthy define absolutely. things for us. Socialism is about production. Yeah. It's about workers being alienated because they're separated from the means of production. It's about Karl Marx. It's about a economic problem that is not something that Robin Hood addresses. It's not something that Robin Hood was responding to or in dialogue with. Sure. So the idea that rich people can suck and be greedy is a universal truth that anyone who hasn't been rich has had to contend with at some point in their life. And that, that means whether there's a middle class or a lower class, that the upper classes have abused lower classes is a is a fact since there since there have been social classes, but to call Robin Hood socialistic to me, um, I think misses a, a bit of a, a mark there. Yeah, I actually think you're you're right. As I put some thought into that, you're absolutely right. Because well, e- even if we take the standard interpretation of Robin Hood, who supports the good king but doesn't want the uh, the bad king or Prince John or the sheriff of Nottingham to abuse the people. So he hurts the, the sheriff of Nottingham economically. He, shir- he hurts Prince John economically. He gives them to the people. He's not advocating that the people who make the arrows actually own the arrows. 
right? right which right. is what a socialist would be arguing. They'd be like, no, you made that arrow, so it's actually yours. It doesn't belong to them. He doesn't go that far. So when understanding, I don't think there's, in other words, I don't think there's a cognitive dissonance to America, Mecca of capitalist, being like, hey, there's Robin Hood. Is he a socialist hero? I don't think right. that's a okay. dissonance yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's something else. So I think it is a few things. I think it's one, anti-elitism. Yeah. And I think America does have this, in particular today, this idea that if you're at the top, if you're in the upper echelon, if you were born in the upper echelon and the, the top stratosphere of society and you stay at the top stratosphere of society, you kind of have to be a dick. Right. Right. There's no other way around it. And like, you're taking more than you're giving. And wouldn't it be nice if you gave more? Well, no one's going to, you're not going to give more. Society won't make you give more. And Robin Hood then represents as the way to force that, which I understand the the, the ease to interpret that as socialism. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time with Robin Hood, it's about brute force. It's about violence. It's not about a law. It's not about passing a new policy. Um, I would also say there is a bit of romanticism in America with England. So England is the society by which America has the most kinship with. We speak the same language. We have adopted many similar customs and many similar traditions it was the English that owned the 13 colonies that eventually became America. So we have this romanticism with all things England and English because it's part and parcel of where we are. Yeah, it's, so it's mommy, it's daddy. Robin Hood emerges as an English folk hero. It makes sense that that crosses the pond over to America. And I don't think that's exhaustive. I don't think every American is going to see Robin Hood as a folk hero. But especially if we, you know, have a sort of simplistic view of what uh, England and Britain represent for us, which is like the uh, the oppressive monarchy, then Robin Hood might uh, symbolize for us the uh, rejection of monarchy or the rejection of authority that becomes what our rebellion became. Right. So he's he's the rebel um, that started this idea in the forests of what it might be to have this utopian democracy, and we sort of took up his cause. Americans have never been opposed to the idea of authority just for authority. Right. Uh, the American experiment was like, hey, when your authority is corrupt and works against the interests of the people, it needs to be reformed and sometimes eliminated. This is very present in Robin Hood yeah, in many tangible absolutely. ways. Robin Hood himself in the more modern and the, the incarnation that we know doesn't hate King Richard. He's not he against king the Richard, king yeah. because he's a good king. He stands against the sheriff because the sheriff in the king's absence is trying to capitalize um, on the absence of the king to enrich himself and potentially make himself the king because the king's not there. So what he's against is the... He's not against religion because he has Friar Tuck with him because he's a good Christian man. But what he's against is the bishop who damned his father as a devil worshiper just to get closer to the king. So it's where power corrupts that's the problem, but power in and of itself is not the problem. Right, right, absolutely. And where wealth corrupts, right? So money in church, uh, money in the Catholic church, or money in the... Uh, sort of pursuit of the throne is what causes uh, sort of unvirtuous leadership, right? So that being a corruptive force means that uh, Robin Hood standing against this, being an outlaw, is actually a heroic and virtuous act. Uh, Robin Hood being someone who withdraws to the lawless forest is not an act of villainy, but is an act of... Uh, you know, martyrdom in a way. Interesting. Yeah. Robin Hood, the character and how it resonates throughout storytelling in from medieval England to present contemporary times. It is fundamentally about power and where power resides. 
And whether the society you're trying to support is a medieval feudal society or the society that you're trying to support is a modern, uh, complex republic like our own, the questions of who has power, why do they have it, and what are their motives are as present and important today as they were then. And a folk hero who represents upending that social order when that social order ceases to work in the best interest of the majority, I think is part and parcel of why it still works today. Everybody knows a bunch of dicks with a lot of money and a lot of wealth can fuck up the world. They can really make terrible decisions. They have a lot of influence and they've got a lot of power. And sometimes it does take a Robin Hood to upend that. Though conversely, the one thing and the lesson that we have of Robin Hood is that when we are choosing our leaders, make sure the Robin Hoods are actually not sheriffs of Nottingham in disguise. Right. And I think that's one thing that we can take away from Robin Hood is choose that leader wisely because a lot of people can say that they're going to upend that social order and that they're going to make sure that the rich are no longer taking only when they get there just to take and take and take. Right. Can I offer sort of a pessimistic uh, perspective on the continued popularity of Robin Hood throughout the centuries? I mean, sure. Our last week's episode ended with pessimism, so let's do it now. So I don't know that I am going to agree with this or call this in any way definitive, but in my research, I kept coming upon uh, these explanations for Robin Hood taking hold in the times that he did, in the ways that he did uh, within the legend and the evolution of it. Um, and there were some themes that kept coming up again and again. So with the uh, 15th century ballads and plays and carnival games, uh, we have to imagine that these uh, plays were being watched or these games were being played by a lower or middling class that was beginning to rise within uh, the constraints of the medieval world that we have at this time. Robin Hood, as this figure of sort of anti-authority, can be really galvanizing and can be really exciting, but can also function in this carnivalesque manner as a sort of tension release valve for a frustrated populace for a frustrated peasantry or lower class who might expel some of that energy in revolt, in rebellion against the people who are oppressing them. But if the people who are oppressing them are writing Robin Hood ballads that magically uh, answer all of their economic hardship, then maybe they'll find a kinship in that figure who will entertain them enough to keep them at bay. And then once again in the 19th century, when he sees this resurgence as this noble figure who can split an arrow, uh, once again, he's a figure who uh, can help to sort of take the focus of that rebellious energy, of that uh, sort of moment of, hey, we're the have-nots, we should be taking from the haves, but we have a character who seems to be magically resolving that conflict making us feel better, satiating our uh, our lust for uh, revolution, and yet we don't have to actually make any changes to uh, a broken system. Whoa. So I know I've just introduced Whoa. here okay. kind of... Uh, okay. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I'm into it. So I think that is a very valid point. So... We have to ask ourselves, what is the virtue in entertainment and what is... so? And, and uh, the virtue in national heroes as me, entertainment versus history. So if we understand Robin Hood as a folk hero, as a folk lore, as something that the common folk talk about and discuss and becomes a hero for them, we have to ask ourselves, what's the virtue of having such narratives? One particular interpretation, which should not be discarded at all, yeah. is that the element of storytelling as escapism, as I listen to a story to escape from my woes, to relieve, as you called it, tension, or relieve pressure, or relieve a underlying subconscious desire 
that I can't manifest day to day, but I can do it through this story as a way to pacify and as a way to hold down and as a way to ultimately opiate, to use a Marxist term, the masses um, is something that I think is worth understanding and contending with. I think worth worth really peeling under the onion, under the hood, whatever you want to call it. So I think you touched on something very sensitive there. Modern contemporary storytelling, just as medieval and just as agent, can do that. Yeah. It can certainly say, you know what? I will never be strong and brave because I'm weak and frail, but I can watch Captain America be strong and brave, and that's good enough for me. So I'll never have to approve my situation at life. Well, I'll never have a merry man shower me with gold, but it happens in the narrative. So no need to actually go kill the noble who has all the gold because it happened in the story. So I think that is a function. I think that function, um, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to call it cynical in the respect that, I don't think it's a conspiracy where a bunch of people are like, let's tell Robin Hood stories and pacify the masses. <laughs> Grimma, worm tongue-ish. Like, I don't think it's it goes that far because I think the stories are told in earnest because people enjoy them. Just as I don't think a Captain America is a cynical character. I think he is actually a joyous character. But the question remains, as us, us now, because we can't change what happened in the past, When we engage with media and in the media-saturated environment that we have, what's the fucking point? Right. Are we doing it through with critical analysis to make ourselves and the human condition better? Or are we plugging into a system that is selling us products and we're passively going along down this river? Because I can't change the fact that Robin Hood may have had that social function in the past, but I certainly can change the narrative of Robin Hood in the future. And so while you may be right and you, you may have the point of Robin Hood is that it relieved that tension. That's why it survived because it was able to do that. It may not be the whole point, which, right. which is to say folk, folk heroes are symbols. Symbols change and fluctuate over time. Robin Hood may have been a release valve of social tension for medieval society as it was reconciling what it meant to become a modern society. The question is, is when we discuss Robin Hood now, what do we want it to mean? And at the end of the day, you know, regardless of whether that pessimistic reading is true or not, uh, we stand kind of at a crossroads of whether we want to perceive our folk heroes as pacifiers or we want to see them as aspirational, right? So is Robin Hood great because he's entertaining and we like to see him split the arrow? Or is Robin Hood great because he stands for freedom in an unfree time and he continues to stand for freedom throughout the centuries? Is he sort of the, the... perfect representation of the English identity and thereby uh, the rebellious American identity because he lives in the forest and hangs out with his buddies? Or is he that representation because these are the people who wrote and drafted and signed the bucking Magna Carta and then the Declaration of Independence? There are also versions of the Robin Hood myth where Robin Hood is one of the men who brings the Magna Carta to King John and makes him sign it. So we have this growing symbolism toward this character representing and affirming universal human rights. And I think what is great about this character is that as we continue to adapt his story, we continue to introduce new elements that continue to affirm human rights as we have affirmed them, whether those are feminist, whether those are embracing diversity of race and ethnicity, whether those are incorporating uh, a national identity that reaches out to sort of brotherhood and sisterhood of all men, women, and those beyond the binary. So that's where I'm interested in 
who Robin Hood is today as we continue to make him an aspirational figure and continue to make him a character who sort of snowballs into this slow, incremental, and yet uh, never-ending chain toward a more just world. Yeah, and it could also be for a 10-year-old to go, hey, mommy, hey, daddy, what are the Crusades? (laughs) And that's what it did for me. Yeah. Oh, because to me, as a 10-year-old boy watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I asked my first question, what were the Crusades? Because to me, the knights are the good guys. They don't go around just killing people because they have a different religion. That's not what knights do. Knights are noble. But wait a minute, the knights did that? Robin Hood did that? He went out and then he had to he had to learn that that was wrong? And to me, it grounded the idea of medieval history and put a sense of realism to it that sparked my imagination to want to learn more about a different period of history, to want to study what it meant to be a medieval knight and to strip away the romanticism of it. I love it. And, you know, I realized in this entire conversation, we haven't talked about the movie we set out to talk about. Maybe we mentioned it once or twice. So I think I'm going to say that, one, this was a great introduction podcast. However, if you'll permit me to, to call it now, I'd like to actually dive into the movie, too. Maybe we should make this part one of a two-parter. I would absolutely advocate for that. Um, as I was doing research, I was like, there's no way this is all going to fit into one. So I'd be I thought, excited. I thought it would, I thought it would, but I guess I was wrong. I'd be excited to talk about it more. And I'd be excited to talk about its implications on the sort of modern Robin Hood and who we are today. So I think this was a great discussion about the history of Robin Hood. I'd like to jump into contemporary tellings of Robin Hood in the next episode. Absolutely. And, um, I will say this guys until next time. If you can't split the arrow down the middle, be kind. Be kind. Right, so Robin Hood sort of quintessential folk hero. Um, of course, I don't have the de- definition in front of me. That's okay. I'm pouring a beer. I thought I had it, but I don't. No, you know what? That's okay. Maybe we should keep this little, little behind-the-scenes magic. I have it. I have it. Little behinds, behind we the hinds. We cannot hind, keep this. Behind the hinds. We, we cannot keep, keep we this. We can't keep this in no. the final cut? You're probably right about that. <laughs>